Welcome to a new space dedicated to biculturalism, a place to gather conversations, resources, and perspectives for everyone who wants to delve into the world of dual identity. I'm Natanya Hoffman, and you're listening to The Extra Half. Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode 21. It's our last episode of the year, so if you've been enjoying our work, here are a few simple holiday gifts that would mean a lot to us at The Extra Half. If this podcast is important to you, please tell a friend about it. Send them a link to your favorite episode and maybe tell them why you liked it or post about it on social media. You can also donate to us directly at patreon.com slash the extra half. Or if you'd prefer to make a one-time donation, just get in touch at the extra half at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Now on to today's episode. This week's guest is Harriet Langley, a Korean-Australian violinist who calls Belgium and the United States home. Harriet has performed around the world in festivals as a soloist and as a chamber musician, and is currently based in New York City. We touch on a lot of topics today, including one that is not directly related to biculturalism, although it is very relevant and important to us both. The importance of our eating habits and their greater impact on the world. We hope you'll stick around for that part as well. Here's the conversation. Hi, Harriet. Hi. <laughs> when people ask you where you're from, what's the short answer? What's the long answer? And what do you usually tell people? So for the short answer, I try to ascertain the reason for which they are asking the question. If I feel like it's because of my accent, then the short answer is that I'm Australian. If it's maybe because of the way that I look, um, I say that I'm half Australian, half Korean. And if I'm just introducing myself and need the short answer, it's that I'm from Belgium. And the long answer <laughs> is that my father is Australian, my mother's Korean. I was born in Australia. Um, we moved around a lot when I was a child, so I grew up kind of everywhere, but my family's now been settled in Brussels, Belgium for 14 years, which is by far the longest we've been in one place. And I myself live in New York City. Wow. And how did your parents meet and where did they meet actually? So they met in Korea. My father grew up in Australia and Melbourne and um, as a young adult had a real curiosity to and a desire to want to travel and so he went to Asia and traveled around and ended up spending some time in Korea and um, as he was exploring martial arts and calligraphy and um, other things he was also teaching English on the side um, and my mom was one of his students. <laughs> wow and which language do they speak with each other now? English. My mother is multilingual and my father speaks only English. <laughs> so then I guess uh, you speak English with your father and what about with your mother? Yes, I do. Uh, with my mother, it's a little bit of a mixture between English and Korean. I speak Korean, but my level is that of a four-year-old maybe. <laughs> so uh, my comprehension skills are decent. Um, I can make myself understood, but the minute we talk about something serious, I, my mom and I, we, I, or at least I will switch to, to English. And in which countries do you actually have citizenship? I have citizenship in Australia and as of last year in America as well. Wow. How, what was that process like for you? Um, it was an emotional process, actually. So both my parents and I had green cards through my father's job when we were living in New York when I was a child. So when I came to the States to study, it was on a green card already. And after being here for five years, I became eligible to apply for citizenship. And so I went through the motions. Um, this was shortly after... Um, the 2016 election. So I was advised by um, the immigration lawyers that I was working with to stay in the States, which is why I decided to apply for my master's or pursue my master's in New York. And 
Um, so it took a couple years, but I did become American last year, which felt very momentous. Um, and it was interesting because I think I, I had a number of close friends become American under the previous administration, actually. And I saw how moving that was for them to become a part of a people that they were so excited about and proud of and shared similar values with. And um, so for me to become American last year, I also felt the pride and the humility. And I, I mean, I especially felt incredibly lucky because I know that that this was an opportunity afforded to me that is not afforded to many people who desire this and need this. Yeah. So you were able to vote in this election. I was. It was the first time in my life, in fact, that I have been able to vote for anything. <laughs> so again, that was hugely momentous. Wow. Well, I'd like to talk a little bit about the different cultures that you grew up in and were exposed to, and specifically some maybe differences between between your cultures. But I guess the first thing I'm wondering is how you would like to define your cultures and which cultures of all the places that you grew up in you feel define you most or you'd like to talk the most about throughout the course of this conversation. Yeah, well, that is a bit of a tough question only because that's evolved throughout my life and it's a question that I continue to ask myself. I, I'm very proud of my Australian and my Korean heritage but I spent so little time in both countries and at such a young age that um, it has been tough and especially in adulthood to maintain the emotional connection with the two cultures um, I would say that I've spent all of my teenhood years in Europe and I've spent most of my 20s in the States. So in terms of the cultures that I feel best represent me or that I feel the most a part of, I would say um, I feel mostly European, <laughs> but I do think that I'm I'm influenced by American culture as well. And what's interesting is that I don't actually feel Belgian, um, even though my family's been there for 14 years. I went to French school for pretty much all of my schooling um, and, in fact, spent every summer of my childhood in France because at least at the time, neither of my parents spoke French. My mom does now, but at the time, neither of my parents spoke French. And so the French school holidays being quite long during the summer, they were sort of worried that I might forget um, the language a little bit or lose, lose grasp of it. So we spent the summers in France and throughout all of the moves that we made, um, that was sort of the consistent element is that it didn't matter where we were living throughout the year, the summer would be spent in France. And so there's a there's a big part of me that feels like I most associate with French culture, actually, and that I feel French. But, you know, even that isn't... I mean, I, I can understand how that doesn't feel like it makes a lot of sense because I'm not French at all. My family's not French. I've never lived in France, really, and I don't have a drop of French blood. Um so yeah, I think it's constantly evolving with with where I'm spending more and more time and um it's it's a question to which I don't have a firm answer. Mm. And in terms of Korean and Australian culture, are there ways in which it does kind of permeate your everyday life either in terms of like cuisine or habits or traditions? Yes, they do. I would say that although I'm very proud to be Australian. Um, probably it's it's my Korean background that is more evident in my day-to-day -day life. I say that because I think some of it has to do with the fact that I look mixed race. I am mixed race. So I think that's the more visible element of being half Korean. Um, 
there's a language associated that, with that as well, even though I'm not fluent in it. And I think that my mother, although she's now spent many years outside of Korea and is very much a woman of the world, I think she, I think her values are strongly rooted in Korean tradition. And I think she chose to raise me with those values. Whereas my father, I would say, my father's never been very sentimental about being Australian. He's never been particularly patriotic. And therefore, I feel like he has been much more interested in teaching me how to um, integrate into the new cultures that we were coming into rather than instilling a strong sense of where we come from. And there is, of course, that element always that, you know, I have this as well as a native English speaker or my father as a native English speaker that to some extent you don't need to make an effort to preserve the language. Of course, the culture is a different thing, but the English language has this specificity of being a language that will be ubiquitous in most of the places that you go to. Yeah. Yes, exactly. I was actually going to ask you about that as well. I mean, that's the thing is that for my Korean half, it's it's defined by so many things that are at least on paper more visible. Um, but like you say, with the Australian side, it's we already share the language and um, and a lot of the traditions, especially with my parents living in Europe, you know, a lot of the Australian traditions are originally or historically quite Anglo-Saxon and geographically now my parents being closer to the UK I mean I, I do think that that there's less of a need perhaps to point out what you know where we come from and, and what makes us Australian and how to incorporate that into day-to-day life um, but yeah. Do you have cousins or, or relatives on either side of the family who are also from two different cultures or are the two sides of the family relatively homogenous within themselves? Yeah, that's a good question. I am the only um, one amongst all of my cousins who is mixed race. My mother is one of eight children, actually, um, seven girls, one boy. <laughs> She's the only one who married a non-Korean. And my father has two sisters, both of whom married Australians. And is it ever lead to you feeling like there are certain parts of your family or your family's culture that are hard for you to understand, either in terms of like just because you've lived in many different countries or because of that other perspective coming from that other side of the family? I think when I'm in Korea and around my Korean family, it's interesting because I feel like the difference between us is more pronounced I obviously look different. I sound different because I'm not fluent in the language. And yet, as I said earlier, I was brought up with my Korean side being a lot more present in the way that my mother raised me. And so there's almost this this desire to prove, no, I am Korean and, and I do belong here. And yet there is a major disconnect with the way that I sound, with the way that I look and the fact that um, the last time I lived in Korea, I was four years old. So I really don't know what it means to live in Korea. And so, and I, I think that sometimes because of the language barrier, because of the fact that I am white passing, um, when I'm in Korea, there's kind of a tendency to not really see me as Korean which I completely understand, but was more difficult for me as a child to navigate. Um, as for when I'm in Australia, that's also a little bit tough. I don't obviously feel as out of place perhaps in terms of the language and the way that I look, but it's interesting because I, again, really want to feel a part of the culture there. And yet I don't really know what it means to be Australian. I don't really know what it means to grow up there. I mean, everything about the country 
you know, outside of my love for it, <laughs> feels very foreign to me. Um, so throughout my my various trips in Australia, um, especially as an adult, I've sort of wanted to learn more and more about this country that I feel such a strong connection to and yet have such a poor understanding of, I think. Yeah. And you started to bring up a subject that I wanted to talk a little bit more about. I think sometimes, you know, and one of the purposes of this podcast is to to foster a sense of community among people who are bicultural with all sorts of different cultures and all sorts of different backgrounds, because ultimately we, we have so much in common. It's really incredible. Um, yes. And I'm interested to to hear how you feel as well when you go to America, when you go to Italy and because I do think that when I'm in Australia, for example, there's kind of the more Australian Harriet that comes out that, you know, sort of tries to fit in and, and wants to be seen as Australian. And the same thing happens when I go to Korea, that there's, there's more of the Korean side. And exactly the same thing happens when I'm in Europe. But how do you feel? Do you relate to that when you go to Italy? Is there more of an Italian Natania that comes out versus when you're in Ohio or in the States? Or? Definitely. I feel that people's gait, the way people walk, I find that it's so different from culture to culture. And I find that I sometimes walk differently as well. I mean, it's something so simple and almost kind of silly, but the way people move their hips while they're walking is very different from culture to culture. <laughs> <laughs> That's so interesting. I've never really thought about that. Um, I'm a very slow walker. <laughs> My friends love to tell me. And that's been a bit of a challenge um, living in New York City. So I've certainly had to um, increase my pace there. But I do know what you mean in terms of how you carry yourself physically. So I don't know that I've necessarily um, noticed my walk changing. But I, I do think that the way that I um, carry myself, even from my, you know, to, to my posture, for example, I mean, that's very different even being in New York versus being in Brussels. So it's hard to pinpoint why, but I definitely, I mean, I guess it, it maybe has a little bit to do with you might be dressing a little bit differently and um, and sort of how you decide to you that you choose to present when you're in the different cultures. But our relationship to our bodies does change depending on where we are. I actually feel that quite strongly as well and it's hard for me to pinpoint why but I think for example when I'm in New York I love the fact that New York is just it it is it, this is a cliche but it just really is such a melting pot that you don't you can kind of disappear into the crowd and I love that I mean no one's sort of looking at you twice and you can dress the way you want and you can carry yourself the way you want and and no one's gonna care really and I I that's one of my favorite things about living in in New York City and just people watching and and feeling very much not self-conscious about the way that I look and that I carry myself versus being perhaps you know for example when I'm in Brussels I'm I'm more aware of the fact that I'm um, biracial and I also feel like I carry myself differently I dress differently I think um, I don't know if you'd agree with me, but I think there's a different type of appreciation for for women in the European and sort of francophone culture that um, that I feel like we feed into as well, or I do when I'm there. So, but sometimes when I feel like I'm in francophone culture, I feel much more like a woman than mm. um, than I do in in other places. And yes. I don't really know why, but <laughs> I don't know if you've experienced that or not. Definitely. One great thing about having guests who are classical musicians is that we can always hear an excerpt of their wonderful playing. Here is Harriet performing the first movement of the third sonata in D minor for violin and piano by Johannes Brahms with Ji Young Lee.
I started playing the violin at the age of three, uh, almost four, when a friend of my parents, who is an amateur um, musician, violinist and violist, and a painter actually as well, um, decided that he wanted to start teaching children. Um, so I, my mum enrolled me for his classes. My mum's always been a huge music lover um, her whole life. And, and I think believes that, in fact, she would be a musician today had she been given the opportunity. So it was always important for her that I have at least some exposure um, to music. So she enrolled me in, in the classes and she actually started with me and then gave up after a month because she said it was too difficult. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, I that's how I started playing the violin. And then um, a couple of years later, when I moved to Tokyo, I studied with a cellist, actually. <laughs> I was still a violinist, but had um, studied with a cellist. And then at the age of seven is when I... Um, enrolled in Tohogakuin in in, um, in Tokyo and had my first sort of proper violin teacher, if you will. And was it difficult to adjust to different environments and musical environments as a child? No, I don't. I don't particularly think so. I think what was maybe a little bit more of a challenge was um, studying in different languages. And by that, I mean, I started off um, studying violin in English. And then when I moved um, to Tokyo, and I started at Toho. I was taking lessons in Japanese, and then, um, and then in New York, I, I in English again, and then in Brussels, um, in French, and then in Germany and German, of course. So I think it's more navigating all of the terms and and the approach with the different languages. I would say. And at what age did you feel like this was a career that you wanted to pursue, and this was something that you wanted to study? I feel like violin and music played such an integral role in my life growing up that I think for a very long time there was sort of no question that this is was a career path that I was going to go in. And I think when I was in my late teens, I, I started wondering, well, who do I want to be in this world? What kind of role do I want to play in society? I think similarly to a lot of young adults who go through the same stages and the same questions. And and um, I had a an interesting experience where I was performing in Vienna, the Musikverein, for a, um, a summit of oncologists. And after the concert, I had dinner with a small group of them and somehow this topic came up and I shared this with with one of the doctors and and he shared a story about how he'd been um, hospitalized after an accident for um, a great length of time and how medicine may have saved his body but he, music saved his soul and and it was really interesting because he told me do not leave music do not go into medicine there are enough people who are who are interested in medicine who are meant to do medicine and you know you are a musician and you're meant to be in music and and that's where you can best serve people and do not underestimate the power of music and so that sort of was a real turning point for me um it took some time for me to understand what he meant but but I eventually came to the realization that I do think that we best serve society when we are doing what makes us happiest, when we are doing what most fulfills us. And ultimately for me, that is unquestionably music. And once I came to this realization, I never looked back. It's such a fascinating profession, I find, from so many different points of view and in so many different ways. But I find that one thing that's incredible about this profession is that it's so intertwined with so many different parts of society. And there are so many different people who have had really powerful experiences through music and, and who kind of keep us going. Well, I do think that 
our field is is interesting in that it does connect people from all walks of life. I mean, there is no question, you know, and, and whether it be classical music or other genres of music, I mean, art is what connects so many people. Um, that being said, I think that I have struggled a little bit with the concept that sometimes it's easy for musicians to feel like, music is such a gift and it's such a healing power. And I'm not saying that it's not, it is, but um, I think it's really important for us to be thoughtful about how, how we connect to people through music um, and how we bring music to people. And when I was doing my master's at Juilliard, I actually took a, a course um, in community engagement and, and bringing music, to the wider community and I worked with three other people in a quartet in this class and we had a lot of conversations about what it means to bring music to the community and I think we struggled with the concept of that because yes of course there there have been conversations around the fact that maybe we need to make classical music more accessible to the wider community but that being said people from all walks of life have access to music and they may not have access to the kind of music that we are playing in the in the venues that we are playing but they have access to music that moves them that drives them that um, connects them with other people and so we struggled with the concept of who are we to go into communities and say here's this gift that we are bringing you we're going to play for you and there's something a little bit performative about that where you end up feeling like you're playing at people <laughs> i mean first of all i think that as classical musicians who make this our life's work and our career by definition we're straddling many different parts of society and it's no secret that because our art form has always been heavily subsidized by the one percent it's easy to also think like the one percent even though we're not the one percent and I think that it's really really easy to adopt a missionary style way of bringing the light to the masses um which if we're honest that's not even who we are like that doesn't even represent our own points of views it's just something that's coming from perhaps well-intentioned people whose life and life work hinges on not seeing what's actually going on in society and we as musicians do have the opportunity to open our eyes right no i think that's very true and i do think that i mean i don't take for granted the fact that I've been able to meet people and I've been able to experience different environments and different cultures thanks to being a musician, thanks to what I do. I mean, uh, thanks to the need to travel for, for our profession. There's no question about that. But yeah, I do think that it is important to be thoughtful about how we straddle these different worlds and about understanding um, the relationship that we as artists have to our patrons and to our audience members you know it, it doesn't matter sort of what walk of life they come from and I think it's a little bit tough with classical music as you say because it's always been subsidized by the 1%. And yet we of course know that music, you know, that, that's what, that's not what music is about really. So I, this is a subject that interests me tremendously and that I, but I feel like I almost, I'm grappling at what I'm saying because I haven't yet been able to really form like, because I have felt that for a while, because, you know, in this class that that I was taking at Juilliard, as we were throwing out ideas, everything that we were throwing out just felt kind of, um, it just didn't feel very appropriate. Like what sort of, who are we to go into, you know, like in the end we ended up working actually with a, um, with a women's shelter and 
we did a songwriting workshop and everything, but it's throughout that process, we just were wondering, you know, who are we to go there and say, we're bringing music to you. We're going to alleviate some of your struggles and pain for an hour. And I mean, we, we can't even begin to understand what they have been through and we cannot begin to understand their relationship to music and whether it may alleviate some of the pain or it may worsen some of the pain. I mean, so those were sort of the conversations that we were constantly having right down to the moment that we ended up um, having our workshop and performance. And so that was a very eye-opening experience for me because I feel like until that point, I'd really only experienced the, um, you know, let's have a fundraising concert and donate money sort of aspect of um of community engagement yes and there is one other thing that i wanted to talk to you about um in terms of thoughts and ideas that that are looking toward the future and and i'm curious to see which direction you're going to want to go with this i know that you're a pescatarian and i have been a vegetarian now for 16 years. Um, it's one of those things that's very important to me and it informs who I am in a lot of ways, but it's something that I hardly ever talk about or share. Um, mostly because I went through a brief period in which I shared a lot about my views um, for about two weeks. And then I realized that that was absolutely not something that I was interested in doing because it was alienating people. And it was um, like kind of like you, what you were talking about in terms of classical music. Like I was I was trying to bring light in a way that was really inappropriate. Um, and I had to take a step back and ask myself some some more questions. So we can get into that as much or as little as you'd like. But I'm just curious what your thoughts are and if you'd like to open up a conversation about that. Sure, yes. Um, so I first <laughs> dabbled with vegetarianism, so to speak, when I was, I think, about 11 and I saw a movie in biology class about um, the slaughtering of animals for food. And <laughs> I think like everyone else in that class that day decided to be vegetarian. And that was very short-lived as my parents were not very keen on the idea. And I revisited this when I was 16 as I wrote a paper for class um, about the effects of, of the meat industry on the world. And as I did more and more research, I came to understand that this was something that I knew very little about and that was triggering a very strong reaction within me. And so I made the decision that I wanted to attempt once more to be vegetarian. And I had initially only really thought about you know, when I was when I was 11, I'd really only thought about the effect that it had on animals. But as I was doing research as a 16-year-old, I came to understand the damage that it's inflicting on our planet, on our bodies, on so much more um, than than what I I thought in the past. And so, I announced to my parents once again <laughs> that I was embarking on vegetarianism, and my parents respected my choice. But they said that they wanted me to start off by being pescatarian um, for nutritional reasons. So that was a compromise that we arrived at, which is funny give, given that I was a huge meat eater before this and not a very keen seafood eater. Um, so I felt like I got sort of the <laughs> short end of the stick there but but my mom was adamant that that was the way that she was going to respect and accept my choice and so I began being pescatarian um I'm 28 now so it's been 12 years I have thought about going fully vegetarian I did um attempt again in a very short-lived experiment to be vegan um I am a complete and utter chocoholic and being in Belgium, it was rather tough to stay away from, from chocolate. Um, but it is something that interests me. Um, and by that, I mean, becoming fully vegetarian is something that interests me and is something that I have thought about going towards, um, 
but for now I I remain pescatarian well for me it was the same I mean ever since I was a child the idea the abstract idea of eating animals just kind of well there's something jarring about it and I think it has to do with the way our society um glosses over inconvenient things just carelessly that that as a child it's almost like you're reading the the newspaper and you see the thing with the two pictures and spot the mistake and you're like wait a second like what 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 are we doing here and then and no one really seems to have a good good answer and 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 so that was kind of my first thing as a child but then when i was 12 or 11 I um, read an article about the wonders of being flexitarian. So I was briefly flexitarian. And then at a certain point, I asked myself what I was actually doing, what I was what I was trying to, to achieve. Um, and, and at that point, I decided that, I, that the, way, the place where I was drawing my line in the sand was no meat or fish, but not vegan, so vegetarian. And, and I think that um, for a long time, what accompanied me in that choice was this thought that anytime we want to be alive, like anytime I want to be alive, I have to take life away from others. But there is a lot of nuance in, and there are a lot of ways to mitigate the suffering that I inflict on other beings. Um, and so I think that it's really important for all of us to ask ourselves, um, what are the ways that makes sense for us within our means, capabilities, and lives to mitigate that suffering. Um, and I think that can mean a lot of different things. It can mean reducing plastic. It can mean um, reducing consumption of many different kinds of things, shopping secondhand. It can mean um, being vegetarian or vegan, lots of things. But in that moment, with the means and capabilities that I had, that was what made sense. And then when I was 22, actually, I decided that maybe that was enough that, you know, my reasons for being vegetarian were perhaps childish and perhaps outdated. Um, so as I was getting ready to transition out, um, back to being an omnivore, I guess, I, I did accompany it with some research. <laughs> being an omnivore and doing research are not as compatible as I thought. So, <laughs> so that led to be, me becoming vegan for a year um, instead of, yeah. And then with Interesting what you were saying. I think that um, relationships are so important for human beings. And I think that in these kinds of moments, like, there have been realizations for me of just how important human relationships are. And I'll explain what I mean by that. When I stopped being vegan, it had to do with a great aunt um, who, on several occasions, made me understand that it was very alien for her, having been in many much more difficult life situations than I had, that I was just rejecting things that she had lovingly prepared for me. And I and I understood and I, I, I valued um, that opinion. And that actually led to me trying my first dairy thing after a year. And then the other thing was living with my boyfriend um, and understanding how it's unreasonable for me to impose certain things that make sense with my life and my personality on him. Um, yeah. So at this point, we're both more or less vegetarian. Well, there are several things in what you just said that resonate with me. The first is that it's interesting you talk about our society finding ways to gloss over <laughs> the um, the tough topics. And, and someone recently brought to my attention, and I don't know how I never noticed this before, but that we um, one of the ways that we do that is by calling what we eat um a different word from from how we see them when they're alive versus when they're on our plates. So, you know, calling cow beef and um, pig pork and things like that. And I had just never really connected that it for us it's it's easier to kind of turn a blind eye to maybe the the wrongdoings by calling it by something else. So that's something that I recently was brought to my attention that I, I found really fascinating. And the other thing is that I have, um, similarly to what you were saying, I realized very quickly that this was a choice that was intensely personal and private and that it was not for me to inflict this choice on anyone else around me. And so um, 
at the very beginning, I sort of tried to bring my parents <laughs> onto the bandwagon with me and they were just really not receptive to that at the beginning. And I, and I understood that for me, I was doing this out of a sense of principle and the best way for me to, um, exhibit that principle was just by me being authentic to um, my values and living my life that way and that it didn't really serve any purpose for me to shove my beliefs down other people's throats. And so it's interesting because now um, I would say that my mother is nearly completely pescatarian. And um, although my father does continue to love meat, he he's a lot more thoughtful about his choices. And I think that that's really the important changes, I believe, is I don't necessarily feel like the entire world needs to become vegetarian. I, I just think that as a society, the more thoughtful we are on our approach to the hurt we inflict on the planet, on what, how we nourish and feed our bodies, I think the more thoughtful we are, um, the more we're taking a step in the right direction. And so if that means that, like you're saying, you eat meat occasionally, but just not at home, I mean, those are the kinds of of changes that may feel small, but that to me are, are really important and that are actually carry far greater significance than we may think. I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, absolutely. Those are really the, the conclusions that I've reached as well. And, you know, funny story, I was once um, playing in an orchestra project and someone told me toward the end of the project, um, you should watch out for someone who's going to be here next week because she's a little different. And, well, nerdy aside, the the point he was making was she was going to try to change all the Boeings. Um, and I shouldn't let her change all the Boeings. But the main thing is he said, she's special. Like, you'll, you'll see when she comes. And then the next week I saw her and it was really funny because, like, I could, like, I could tell from a mile away that she was vegan. And I thought it was hilarious because, like, here's someone who's, like, ideologically quite similar to me, um, but who's been painted in this very um, um, unforgiving kind of light and who, sure enough, is living up to the reputation. And so she came in and she was really, like, from the first moment trying to educate everyone on how they should be living their lives. And and it was interesting for me to see how that worked because especially there were some girls, some younger females who seemed quite interested in what she had to say and everyone else seemed completely put off. And and I was thinking like you know we're not going to save the world with a handful of righteous vegans. I don't know, life has taught me at least that, that that's not that's not how it works. Like <laughs> me being perfect doesn't mean that we're all good. We have to work together and I think part of working together is expressing our imperfections and being okay with that and not holding anyone to an unreasonable or uncomfortable standard that that doesn't make sense, I believe. Yeah. I mean, what I think is most crucial is, is curiosity and education. So I think for me, I try to the best of my ability to keep an open mind and to continue to educate myself on, on all of these subjects um, of which I am absolutely no expert. And so through that, I feel like everybody comes to their own conclusions as to the lifestyle that works for them and that works for the world around them. And who am I, you know, far be it from me to tell, to say that, that my way is the right way. I'm not even certain that my way is the right way for me. So, um, I think I just continue to try and, and understand what, how I want to live my life and what that looks like. And I, and I understand and learn from a lot of people who choose to live their lives very differently. Right. Exactly. And I think that, that, I mean, we, we use the word humility a lot. Um, but I think that true curiosity comes innately with a good dose of humility. And I think it's really important to stay curious and, and keep asking questions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, is there a book or a film or a podcast or a, a movie that either taught you something about specific cultures that you come from or more generally about culture, about biculturalism, about identity that you'd like to recommend? 
Yes. So, um, interestingly enough, neither one of my parents spoke very much about the history of our peoples, which I, I've always sort of found interesting because one side of me <laughs> comes from an oppressed people with an oppressed history, and the other side is the oppressor. Um, and so that's something that's been tough to reconcile, actually, and to understand the consequences of. But um, I think that a book that I read a year ago that really shook me to my core and and opened my eyes and made me better understand where I came from and my people was the book Pachinko by Min Jin Lee. <laughs> and I think I just had never had a firm grasp on what it meant to be Korean under Japanese rule. My mom had never really spoken about that. And I didn't even realize that my mother's two eldest sisters were actually born under Japanese rule. And I happened to be in Korea with them as when I was reading the book. So I was able to ask them a little bit about it, despite the language barrier. Um, and so that was incredibly moving for me. And I felt like the book helped me understand where I came from, helped me understand the world in which my grandparents were living and growing up and, and raising their own children. And um, it also helped me understand the rise that, that Korea um, went through, that South Korea went through from being a third world country when my mother was born to now being a first world country. And so this book very, very deeply marked me. And I really enjoyed um, this sort of educational journey it took me on, um, where I, I felt the most connected to my people than I'd, I'd probably ever felt. So I would say that's that's sort of the one book that really defined that for me. Wow. Yeah. It's an incredible book. Yeah. And then I think another book about identity um, that I found really interesting is um, Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates, which I read just a few weeks ago, actually. And um, reading that was for me, hugely eye-opening and informative as well on how somebody else forms their concept of identity in the world that they live in. Um, so, yeah, that, that was another one that I, I felt like strongly influenced me. Well, the very last question that we like to end these episodes with is this idea that you are a fast forward of a family that is having a child um, where the parents come from different cultures, maybe a little bit different, maybe very, very different. Um, and I'm just wondering if you have any advice for such a couple who either has small children or is considering starting a family in terms of what they can be doing or watching out for or thinking about as they embark on this journey? I think it's important to give a strong sense of both cultures um, or of, of the multiple cultures to your children. But I think it's equally important to allow them to choose how to process that information and which parts of the cultures they connect with and want to bring forward into their lives and which parts of their cultures they may feel less connected with. And so I think growing up, I sometimes had pressure from, from either my parents or from other people in my family or even people I'm not related to, to be more connected to one culture or be less connected to another. And, and of course, I think there's a huge amount of, um, well, I think where you were raised, um, where you were living plays a huge role in that as well. So I think it's important to impart all the knowledge of our people and our history as possible. But it's also important to kind of allow your children to choose how to 
take on that information and go out into the world with it. So, Wow. Well, thank you, Harriet. It's been so wonderful to have you. And I've really, really enjoyed just the back and forth and going into so many different kinds of topics and so many different realms of, of thought and possibility and exploring them all together. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure for me. I feel like these are the types of conversations that I love having and um, that I feel like sometimes we don't have often enough. So this has been a great pleasure for me. The Extra Half is created and produced by a small but dedicated team. Thank you to Jilvanas Brasauskas and Jessamine Jones. If you'd like to get involved, remember to send us a message at theextrahalf at gmail.com, support us at patreon.com slash theextrahalf, rate and review the podcast, or find us on Facebook and Instagram. Don't forget to share your favorite episode with a friend, family member, or on social media. We wish you all very happy holidays. Take care. Until next year.